11 evidence-based methods to maximize muscle strength. New research shows that's just not how the body works. This is in response to a recent study that came out examining the relationship between total daily energy expenditure and basal metabolic rate. Everyone loves, loves, loves to talk about being evidence-based, but what the hell does that really mean? I want you to leave this podcast today feeling like you could pick up a research paper and at least begin to start to unpack it and understand some things and at least know what you might ask someone who has put that paper in front of you. Hello, hello, and welcome to The Virtue Podcast. I am very excited to be here today because I am currently, I had a baby 10 days ago and I am recording this in between a feed and a poop for, for her and it's great to be able to squeeze something in like this. I actually managed to write this during the recovery from a C-section and I've been so excited to bring it to you because today's topic, how to be evidence-based, is something that I think is really missing from not just the podcast scene, but everywhere. Everyone loves, loves, loves to talk about being evidence-based. I'm an evidence-based trainer. I'm an evidence-based nutritionist. I'm an evidence-based practitioner in some way, shape or form. But what the hell does that really mean? And not just what does that mean, but what does that mean then for someone who is not evidence-based but who is consuming those services? So if you go to a PT who says he's evidence-based or she's evidence-based, how do you ask questions that enable you to get the most out of what being evidence-based really means? And, and I have been feeling this for quite some time. So this may turn into a series, to be honest, because it really is difficult to cover everything that I want to cover in such a short space of time without bombarding you and overloading you. I'm a little concerned that some parts this might get a little bit like dense and if they do stay with me and then give me feedback like write to me if there's something that you want a little bit more information on let me know your thoughts and I will keep kind of unpacking unraveling these topics All right, I've spoken too much. Let's talk about, let's let's have a little roadmap of today. By the way, if you're new to this podcast, welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you for being here. If you've come back, extra special welcome for you guys. Take a moment if you have come back and if you do find this podcast helpful to give it a five-star rating. It's super easy on Spotify and Apple if you're listening on one of those. And leave me a review. Let me know what you thought of today or any of the episodes. All right, let's get on with it. Roadmap for today. Number one, we're starting with why does research matter? We'll follow that up with how research is conducted. Number three, we're gonna look at why statistics are important in research. And I promise I will do my best at not boring the pants off of you with that particular topic. And then gonna follow this up with, as usual, I want all of these podcasts to be very practical. So we then make sure that we look at how to read a paper today. I want you to leave this podcast today feeling like you could pick up a research paper and at least begin to start to unpack it and understand some things and at least know what you might ask someone who has put that paper in front of you. And then number five, we've got some key terms that I think are worth understanding and impressing people with at your next dinner party. Debate. <laughs> it's obviously a joke, but uh, might happen. Alrighty, let's start. Why does research matter? Big picture. Research enables us to test patterns that we may see or witness in the world, right? We know that what works for Harry doesn't necessarily work for Sally. And that's because research helps us to narrow in on variables that would otherwise be skewing the evidence in some way. Now, that is getting me slightly ahead of myself. So let's ignore the word variables for a second and come back to the notion of research. So when we research something, it's usually because we have a question that we're trying to answer, right? So research has to start with a question. Going back even further, 
A question usually comes from noticing something, something in your environment that makes you go, oh, that's interesting. So essentially, research comes from first noticing something in the environment, some kind of phenomenon, devising a question about that phenomenon, developing a hypothesis about maybe what is causing or driving that phenomena, and of course, then gathering evidence that's either going to support your hypothesis, or maybe you gather a bunch of evidence and it fails to support your hypothesis. Now, side note, in research, hypotheses aren't just a, a philosophical projection, right? That's what I always thought. I was always like, I hypothesize. <laughs> so I sort of thought of it as this like Shakespearean type language. <laughs> it's ridiculous. I just thought it was like, well, I hypothesize X, Y, Z. But in research, it has to have a direction as in a sort of yes or no. So researchers will then use statistical analyses to calculate whether the evidence gathered is really compelling enough. And we'll go into more detail on this in the statistics section. Okay. Now you might be thinking, Shona, this is like primary school stuff. Obviously I know this and I learned this in like year five science, but what I have noticed is that people tend to forget this part when reading, or more importantly, when talking about or quoting research, it all has to come from some kind of observation. And this means that anecdotal research or anecdotal evidence, let's say, is actually still valid. Now, I realize I haven't defined anecdotal yet, but we will go into that and obviously I will revisit this whole point. So in a single sentence, research matters because research allows us to systematically investigate and gather evidence to answer questions and test patterns in the world. It helps us to make informed decisions, understand phenomena, and improve our knowledge and understanding of various subjects. Now, statistics matter. Now, we'll go into detail on this. This is the wrong section, but I'm giving you a sneak preview. Now, statistics matter because they help us to interpret and analyze the data gathered in research. Okay, so they help to, or at least they provide a way to quantify and summarize the information, allowing us to draw meaningful conclusions and make these sort of informed decisions. Now, by using statistical analyses, we can determine the significance of the findings. We can identify patterns. We can evaluate the strength of the evidence. And I really think that understanding statistics, even on a very top line, very surface level way, I guess, is crucial for accurately, I don't even want to use the word accurately, but it's crucial for interpreting research results and avoiding misinterpretation or bias. So as much as the word statistics might uh, make you shudder, I promise that if you want to be evidence-based or if you want to even engage with people, practitioners who are evidence-based, it's worthwhile just even knowing the right questions to ask. And that's what this podcast is really going to be about. Okay, hopefully your eyes didn't glaze over with boredom, <laughs> okay? I really didn't value the power of, of research and statistics until I saw it in action in psychological sciences, whereby you're asking things like, does our parental attachment and relationships at a young age, you know, impact romantic relationships? Or can aggressive thoughts be relieved through aggressive releasing behaviors like martial arts or punching a pillow, right? One of the reasons that these sorts of very valid questions are tricky to answer is because they require 
testing, but how do you operationalize the experiments for things that are locked within the mind? And this is where behaviorism sort of comes into play, where people, behaviorists and people that like to analyze behavior as opposed to psychoanalysis, where you might be looking at, you know, like talking about your past and your history and looking at like your relationship with your mother and that sort of more Freudian approach. With behaviorism, you can observe someone's behavior, which is arguably easier to test and measure than it is to test and measure someone's relationship with their mother. I've slightly digressed, but hopefully that gives you a bit like a tiny little spark of passion to keep going. Okay, let's go to item number two, how research is conducted. Right. As you can imagine, (laughs) there are many ways to conduct research and it really does depend on the research question. Again, another reason why I really want to emphasize the importance of just acknowledging that something has to come from a research question. Now, when you're looking at how research is conducted, you're essentially looking at the research design. Now, if I was just to list out all the different types of research design options there were, I don't think it would be as useful as narrowing it down to maybe these ones first or these sorts of, I guess, this way of ordering it first. So one question that you want to ask about research design when looking at a paper, when speaking to someone about the paper that they're quoting, is to say, was this longitudinal or cross-sectional? So longitudinal research is an approach that involves studying the same individuals or groups over an extended period of time. Now, this allows researchers to observe the changes and trends that occur over time. And obviously, you can imagine that provides hugely beneficial, valuable insights into the long term effects of a variable. So being able to test the long term effects, a certain type of medication, right? That would be really important. So longitudinal would be really, really important to really understand how something might affect someone. Longitudinal studies that look at how diets impact people over a certain period of time. Another really important thing, cross-sectional, however, involves collecting data from different individuals or groups at a single point in time. And this type of research provides, it's still valuable, but it provides a snapshot of a particular phenomenon at a particular or specific moment. So you can still examine relationships and associations between variables, but you might not be able to necessarily know how those things pan out over time. Both longitudinal and cross-sectional research designs obviously have their own advantages and limitations. And the choice of the design really is going to depend on the research question and objectives. Again, another reason why I get so passionate about honoring the fact that you want to look at research and go, what was this researcher trying to answer? What were they what what question were they trying to solve? And then it enables you to understand where they're coming from and why they chose certain things. Okay. <laughs> I'm so sweaty. It's summer here in Australia and I feel like breastfeeding makes you hot, but I could be making that up. So I am I'm sweating up a storm here, but I'm also sweating up a storm because I'm very excited to bring this podcast to you guys. Now, another question that you might want to ask about research and research design is, well, was this particular paper talking about an experimental or non-experimental design? So experimental research, you can imagine it involves manipulating variables and measuring their effects, right? Whereas non-experimental research focuses on observing and describing phenomena without manipulating any variables. Now, experimental research allows researchers to, in a way, establish cause and effect relationships. It's really difficult in research in general to definitely be like, this is definitely cause and effect. But 
when it's experimental because you're controlling a bunch of different variables you're really observing and honing in on this one effect of something on something else it does enable you to hone in a little bit more to draw a stronger conclusion whereas with non-experimental research it's useful for exploring complex phenomena and generating hypotheses for further investigation but because you can't narrow in on all the variables it's very difficult to say that oh this definitely impacted this right so if we're looking at medication for example let's say we're looking at the effect of an antidepressant on on a group of people if we were to just look at how this antidepressant impacted their lives and we just gave them the medication and said okay go and do your thing and um, we'll just meet back here in two weeks and see how how you feel that you can imagine would be not as controlled as saying okay we're going to keep you I mean this would be really hard to get past an ethics board but let's say like we're going to keep you in here for two weeks in solitary confinement. Okay, this is a ridiculous experiment. Anyway, we're going to keep you here for two weeks in the lab and we're going to observe everything and we're going to control everything. We'll feed you. We'll look at this and control all these different variables. We'll track your sleep. We'll make sure you're in a silent room, pitch black, all these different factors that we're trying to control for and keep everyone on the same conditions. Well, then, then we could really see what the impact of a certain type of medication would be because we've controlled all these other things that might otherwise be impacting someone. Make sense? So something that you may have also seen online is an evidence hierarchy. Now, this essentially depicts a pyramid of different types of evidence and ranks them from least to most strength and precision of evidence. Now, if you picture this pyramid, You've got something known as systematic reviews and meta-analyses on the top of the pyramid. And this is highly filtered information. And then underneath that, followed by slightly less rigorous filtered information, you'd have something like a CAT, <laughs> which is an acronym for a critically appraised topic. Now, just to give you a definition for that, this is a standardized summary of research evidence organized around a clinical question. And it's usually aimed at providing a critique of the research and a statement of the clinical relevance of the results. So it's still filtered. It's slightly less filtered. And meta-analyses um, and, and systematic reviews have a different process that is more rigorous than these critically appraised topics. Now, after this, you could have a critically approved article, which is really looking at a specific article rather than uh, necessarily looking at like a whole topic. So it doesn't give you a broad overview, but it could give you a really good understanding of a certain article or paper. There's still a systematic process involved that's used to identify the strengths and weaknesses, and that enables you to assess the usefulness and validity of the research findings. But again, it's not quite as uh, rigorous, as I said, as a meta-analysis or a systematic review. Now, I've used the word systematic a lot, like a lot, a lot. Essentially, you get the picture, okay? The metric for determining the value of evidence really has a lot to do with whether it went through some kind of systemized, there's that word again, filtration. We're not quite at the end of the pyramid, okay? So now we're going to look at unfiltered information, starting with the most robust version of unfiltered information, and that would be probably a randomized controlled trial. You could follow that up with cohort studies, followed by case reports and case controlled studies. Now, sitting at the bottom of this pyramid is expert opinion. 
and anecdotal evidence, which is essentially just personal observation that is collected in a non-systematic manner. Just some casual noticing. I would say it's like the situationship of evidence. If this episode feels truly, truly loved, then by all means, I will do a part two and I'll start to break down things in much more detail, which will help you definitely along the way to engage with evidence more. If it absolutely tanks, I'll know that you didn't care about this and we can just accept things. Just, they just didn't work out between us. Now, if we come back to the importance of a research question, it must, must, must be said that different hierarchies exist for different question types. And even loads of researchers, experts would disagree on the exact rank of that hierarchy. Like some of you listening might be like, I don't agree that a meta-analysis sits above a critically appraised topic. Maybe, maybe some of you are going to feel that way. Or maybe some of you are going to say, oh, you can't always place RCTs at the top because in psychological science, that's not always possible. And therefore it's unfair to say that an RCT is always the most valuable. So we don't need to say that. As always, it depends on the research question. But just as a general overview, I do think it's important to acknowledge that this can be helpful. Now, this is where I really want to drive this point that anecdotal evidence is still really important. Remember, if we didn't have personal observations, then there would be no one conducting randomized controlled trials on things. Okay, so it has to start from somewhere and it starts from someone noticing something in their environment, as I've already said. So it's more about looking at a piece of evidence and having the knowledge that hopefully this podcast is providing you to discern how much and what can truly be taken from this piece of evidence that you've either come across or that someone has sent to you or that someone is using to sell their program or product. So we've spoken about evidence and research, but have we chatted about everyone's favorite topic yet? Statistics. Woo! All right. Why are statistics important in research? Please, please, please note that we really could do a whole episode on statistics alone. And maybe I will because I really learned to love statistics towards the end of my psych degree. But I think it's just because I was lucky to get some really amazing lecturers and tutors. I had some awful ones too, but there are some standout ones and I will hopefully get them on the podcast when I am no longer studying at this uni because I think it might be a conflict of interest while I am. Anyway, let's move on. Statistics enables us to summarize, analyze and interpret data in a meaningful way. Okay, it provides us with the tools to make sense of the vast amount of information gathered in research. Common statistical analyses include descriptive statistics, which help us to describe and summarize the data that we've collected from a particular research that we're conducting. We've got inferential statistics, which allow us to make inferences and draw conclusions about a population based on a sample. So understanding statistics, I really think is crucial for accurately interpreting the research findings. So one of the hardest things I think about being evidence-based is understanding what certain statistical terms mean and imply for a given research paper. I don't think you need to necessarily be an expert researcher to take interest in and take benefit from understanding some basic, some basic top line statistics concepts. I think you can actually be very a very good evidence-based practitioner or evidence-based PT, let's just say, with some understanding. 
even if you don't actually know how to run those analyses or explain them. However, there are some key basic top line things to look out for when you're reading research or when someone else has decided to quote research to you. Now, I'm narrowing this down to two key terms. As you can imagine, that is not a lesson in statistics, okay? So again, if you want more on statistics, you have to show me in the only love language I'm going to understand, which is sharing the podcast and saying, yes, we want more on this. Otherwise, I'm going to assume that you'd rather watch paint dry than discuss statistics with me. Okay, so key term number one, statistical significance. Statistical significance refers to the likelihood that the results of a statistical analysis are not just due to chance. So it's used to determine if there is a meaningful relationship or difference between the variables in a study. When you run an analysis on data you've collected, you'll obtain what's known as a p-value. This is also known as the probability value, okay? And it's a statistical measure used in hypotheses testing, which is what we're doing, right? When we're testing something, we have a hypothesis and we wanna know if the evidence is profound enough, right? Now, statistical significance quantifies the strength of evidence against the null hypothesis. Okay, so let's go over this. In hypothesis testing, you actually start with the null hypothesis, which is the assumption that there is no significant difference or relationship between two variables. So if I wanted to see the difference between the academic performance of females in a co-educational school versus the academic performance of females in a single sex school, I'd gather all the data, right? But I've got two groups. So one group is single sex. One group is the co-ed girls. And I'd gather all that data as rigorously as possible. And then I'd compare that data. And when I do that, my amazing math skills, aka a statistics program application on my computer (laughs) that will do the heavy lifting for me, is going to tell me if there is a significant difference between the two data sets. So the null hypothesis would be that there's no difference. There's absolutely no profound, no significant difference between girls in a co-ed school and their academic performance versus girls in a single sex school and their academic performance. Okay. However, if there is a significant difference, well, then we can reject the null hypotheses, right? And that's all. I know the terminology gets a little bit confusing because <laughs> they say like, we fail to reject. And I'm like, that's a double negative. <laughs> Feels like a double negative. Anyway, but if we reject the null hypotheses, we're essentially saying that, no, there actually is a significant difference. Okay. So the p-value will range from zero to one. And a small p-value, which is generally less than 0.05, indicates that this observed data that we've rigorously collected is unlikely to occur by chance alone, which provides evidence against the null hypothesis. (laughs) Okay, so remembering that that null hypothesis is that there's no significant difference. And in our little example here between co-ed academic performance and single-sex academic performance. Okay, in other words, a small p-value suggests that there is strong evidence to support the alternative hypothesis, which is that there is a difference in performance. Now, on the other hand, large p-value, which is greater than 0.05, indicates that the observed data is likely to occur by chance. And there's insufficient evidence to reject that null hypothesis. So in this case, we fail to find significant evidence supporting that alternative hypothesis that there is a difference between these girls. Okay, so it's important to note that the p-value, though, it is not a measure of the magnitude or practical significance of the effect. It simply indicates the strength of evidence against the null hypothesis. And this is why we have to talk about our next term to remember, a key term, effect size. 
So what is effect size? This one's rarely talked about. So when you hear someone kind of like quoting research, you know, maybe on a podcast or somewhere and they're like, oh, there was a significant difference between, you know, the men that did do this and the men that didn't or the women that did do this or the women that didn't. And when you hear the word significance, a lot of the time, I mean, I used to really feel like, oh, that that means it definitely is a thing, right? We're, this is the phenomena we're seeing and this is valid. Okay, cool. I can take what I need from that research. But what a lot of people don't tend to talk about is the effect size of something. So the effect size is a measure of the magnitude of the difference or relationship between variables in a study. So it provides information about the practical significance or importance of the effect observed. Let me say that again. It provides information about the practical significance, okay, or the importance of the effect observed. So while we've got our statistical sig significance, which focuses on determining whether an effect actually exists, effect size kind of quantifies it, right? It quantifies the size or the strength of that effect. Now, there are different types of effect size measures, depending on the research question and the type of data being analyzed. So we've got things like Cohen's D, which assesses the difference between two means. We've got, maybe you've heard this, a Pearson's correlation coefficient, and this measures the, the strength and direction of a linear relationship between two variables. So you'll see that in correlational studies. Maybe you've heard someone say something like, you know, this behavior was correlated to this behavior, or this medication was correlated to this behavior. So that's a correlational study. And usually they'll be looking at a Pearson's correlation coefficient now, the thing that's important to note is that correlation does not necessarily mean causation. So we have to remember that in the back of our minds whenever we're looking at a correlation study. Now, effect size is particularly useful when comparing results across different studies or when we're evaluating, as I said earlier, the, the practical significance of an effect in real world terms. In terms of researchers, it really helps them and practitioners, I would say, to understand the magnitude of the effect and, and its potential implications. Now, understanding both, Statistical significance and effect size is really, I think anyway, important for comprehensive interpretation of research findings. The reason I really wanted to squeeze effect size in there is because people will often just be reading the abstract of a study as well, and it'll point out only the statistical significance and not really the effect size. Some, some abstracts will talk about the effect size, but a lot of them won't. And so if someone's quoting research and they just look at the abstract or they just quote that significance factor, I dare you to ask them about effect size. <laughs> Tell them Shona sent you. I actually watched Charlie's Angels the other day and I can tell you that it is categorically would not fly today. Like the internet would burn it at the stake. Anyway, I was raised on it. So for the nostalgia, I wanted to add that in despite it being highly objectifying. And anyway, the teen in me still likes it. What is its relevance to today's topic? Not much, really. I just, it just felt like <laughs> we're leveling up. We're leveling up the standard in the industry. Not letting people just get away with like willy-nilly throwing out the word significance into the universe, into the ether of the internet. And instead it's like, well, what does that really mean, Kyle? Um, okay, how to read a paper today, today. I want you to be able to read it today. This is going to be top line information, fam. Okay. Reading research is a skill that takes many years. I am still practicing it. I practice it all the time because when I read papers, I then have to really go back over my statistics notes. I have to then search terms. I'm constantly trying to define them. And then even then, sometimes because I don't have other contextual knowledge, I'm maybe drawing 
an incorrect interpretation from research. And this is why I'm constantly having to either ask professors or ask other experts who have been doing this for much longer and working in research to really try to understand, like, am I right here? Have I interpreted these findings correctly? And obviously we don't want other people to have to do the hard labor for us. So I've never just send them a paper and go, can you read this for me? It's more like I'll try to devise a very specific question to ask. Now, I know you're probably thinking, can't I just get experts to do all the work and then I just listen to the experts? And I would say yes, it's just that now every everyone can kind of be an expert, right? Like everyone can sort of present themselves as experts. And then even then we have experts that kind of take advantage of that and take advantage of the fact that they can have a platform, uh, they can hire a social media team to produce a whole bunch of content and they just hide behind their expert name and if we don't learn how to hold those experts accountable to a higher standard of what they're sharing of what they're saying, then this is only going to get worse and we're only going to be more susceptible to manipulation. So I think it's just about really armoring yourself. Oh, armoring is the wrong word. I don't want us to all come from the perspective that everyone's trying to pull the wool over our eyes. I don't think that that's the case. I think that it's more a question of engaging, engaging with the information that we have. So what I'm about to share is very top line. It's not exhaustive, but it's going to give you a good place to start if you want to consider and start to become a more evidence-based consumer or an evidence-based PT. If I have any PTs listening or nutritionists listening or anyone, even yoga teachers, anyone in the realm of offering health and fitness and wellness services, like I think being evidence-based is imperative. It's, it's really a must, but I know how intimidating it can be. So hopefully this gives you a good place to start. You can always ask me questions as well. Okay, you're gonna get out five different colored highlighters. And the first questions we're gonna ask using either the abstract alone, or we're gonna take out the whole paper, hopefully if it's an open access paper. I do want you to have full access to a paper and I've shared plenty with you guys already so you could take one that I've given you an example with in the show notes. And you are going to say, what did the researchers do? What did the researchers find? And what did the researchers conclude? So for do, you'll choose one color. For find, you'll choose another color. And for conclude, you'll choose the third color. And this enables you to just immediately get a, an overview of a study and try to understand the different things that were done. Okay, do, find, and conclude. This is a really good way to just take a quick overarching understanding of what was the relevance of this and what did they do and what did they find? <laughs> okay, the last two colors are gonna be for the next steps. You're then gonna take a highlighter and highlight the strengths of the study. And in the, the last color, you're going to use it to highlight the limitations of the study. So the strengths and limitations are usually found in the discussion section of the paper. And that's way at the back of the paper. That's after the whole, whole research. Remember that when we're looking at do find and conclude, when ideally not just looking at the abstract, but we will do that too, but we'll then open the paper and we'll start move past the introduction which will give you an overview of the, the whole topic, kind of give you a little mini review of everything. It's a great thing to read, but let's just say for the sake of reading today, we just want to like skip past that for a second and we want to go, what did they do? So then we go to the method section and we highlight those things that they did. So highlight some important things like, you know, how many participants were there? Are we trying to draw inferences about a male population, but we're reading a study that was conducted on women? How relevant is that going to be to us really getting to the bottom of what we need to get to, right? And usually it's the other way around. <laughs> usually it's like, we're trying to answer a question about how, women or, or female bodies might behave in a certain way and 
unfortunately, so many of the studies are conducted on males. And so you have to then discern, like, is this really relevant? So that's why it's important to look at, like, what did the researchers really do? Then you would go, and then what did they find? And this is often in the results section. Now, some of those results sections are going to be quite dense. They're going to have a lot of statistical terminology because they would use statistical analyses to analyze the data that they collected in that method section. That can sometimes be a little bit overwhelming, but if you can read through it and just highlight sections you do understand, and then if there's anything you don't understand, I know that I said take five colors, but if you have a sixth color, you can always just circle words to come back to later that you might want to um, look up. And this is a really good way to be very engaged with, with what you're doing. It's super, super important if you really want to understand things. If you're just kind of reading that abstract, you're not getting enough. So then we move past into that discussion section. We're looking at the strengths and limitations of the paper. And in that, you're going to have the chance to understand how this study or review relates to the context of the topic or how it adds to it. And it will also tell you where these findings from this particular research might not be so helpful or where further research is needed. So gaps in the research, understanding where things might need to be filled in a little bit. Also really helpful. Now, I'll have an example of this on my Instagram. So if you guys want to see a video of what I mean, make sure that you're following at virtue underscore podcast and that's on instagram and it will just show you what i do it'll show you the process okay hopefully i haven't bombarded you with that one but i think that's a really good exercise last but not least i'm going to leave you with some key questions to ask when someone quotes research now i think this is a great way to determine both the validity of that quote and also to impress or maybe intimidate your crush at the next dinner party <laughs> right it, it may actually severely intimidate them but but Perhaps that will expose a wound in them if it does intimidate them. And then you'll be able to see how they manage triggers like that. Because it's not about whether someone gets insecure or not, because we all feel insecure, right? It's about how they handle that insecurity that determines whether they are worth your crush energy. If it's just for sexy time, then I guess it doesn't really matter either way. But if you're you know, looking to have a relationship with that person... It's not about like, oh, they got intimidated and so boo to them. Intimidation... Like we all feel it at times. How do they manage that? Do they puff up? Do they shrink? What happens next? It's all like a great litmus test, if you will. I think anyway. Now, aside from effect size, which now you know what that is, we also want to look at the cohort of people studied. I did mention this just briefly, but for example, if someone says 85% of men prefer women who wear makeup and short skirts, before you run away from the person quoting that particular... <laughs> research, I say in inverted commas, ask yourself or them, well, where did this data come from? How generalizable are these results? If the cohort of people that were surveyed for this study, that they're saying 85% of these men prefer women who wear makeup and short skirts. If that cohort of people was a red pill group, then yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if 85% of these men preferred that. In fact, I'd be shocked. I'd be like, that seems quite low. I would have expected them to want more, more of them to, to want you to be wearing <laughs> makeup and short skirts and whatever, right? We can not generalize that most men prefer that, right? Because that's not fair. We're looking at a very specific cohort of people there. OK, so what we want to look at is what is the generalizability of these results to a female population? Not so much for this example that I'm using here, but if a PT is stating that everyone should train fasted or everyone should be doing sprint training on an empty stomach for a better fat loss, according to this study, well, now you have some good questions to ask, right? We can say, well, <laughs> what's the effect size? 
by the way. But also we can say, well, who was the cohort that they studied that on? Now, if they studied that on a bunch of female athletes, then you could also say, well, yeah, but I'm not a female athlete. I live a very different life. So how generalizable is that for me to take from that? Because there could be other variables that are impacting that quote unquote female athlete that they couldn't control for. So for example, a female athlete lives a very rigorously strict life for their sport. If you have a career that sits outside of sport, let's say you work in finance or you work in HR or something else that just is in an office, how comparable is that really? Not very. So it's how much inference can you draw from that research? I don't know. It's hard to say. Depends on the research. Now, one final question to ask is, what are the limitations of the study? Now, every study has its limitations and it's important to really understand them when evaluating the findings, right? Now, consider asking about factors such as, as I said already, cohort and with the cohort, we can say not just what are the sex differences, or what sex of cohort were they looking at. We also want to look at sample size. We want to look at study design. We want to look at potential biases that may affect the results. Being aware of these limitations are going to help you to assess the strength and the reliability and the generalizability of the research to make informed decisions. And it's a really good way to know if they've actually read the paper, because if they have, then they'll be able to quote what those limitations are, if they can remember. I want to reiterate that I feel like some of this sounds like I'm trying to catch people out, but that's not my intention for creating this podcast. My intention for this podcast is actually that you get to engage more with research and not just research, but with the, the expert that you're listening to in a way that's going to get you more out of what you're looking at, right? And it helps you to get that information into your memory a little bit better as well, right? Because retaining information is dependent on the level of semantic processing. So by actively engaging with the material that you're reading and relating it to your own experiences and knowledge and asking questions, you can enhance your understanding and more importantly, your retention of the information. Because what's the point in just like reading all this research and then not really retaining anything or not getting anything out of it? So when reading a research paper or discussing research findings, try to connect the concepts to not just real world examples or how they apply to your own life, but also connect the concepts to questions that you want to ask that are real world examples or that, that do, do relate to your life. And I think this not only helps to, to grasp the concept better, but also make it more memorable. And I don't just make this up. That whole thing about, you know, retention of information being dependent on the level of semantic processing, I first learned in my a neuroscience unit actually where we were looking at semantic processing and just memory in general and the process of memory and that semantic processing is a really important way to then commit things to memory so if you were to just sort of like it's why like flashcards might not necessarily be as effective as something like writing an essay on a topic which would help you to really have to like understand it to a deep level a deeper degree or even if you've ever had to do a speech on something or ever had to you know give a talk on a particular topic it helps you to commit a lot of these things to a deeper level of understanding than if you were to just try to memorize a few words around it virtue podcast family i really hope you enjoyed today's podcast i'm going to get back to feeding ayana or at least changing her nappy i'm very lucky to have justin in the background looking after her right now while i record this i'm going to get tend to these mother duties and if you have any questions please send them to me please don't forget to leave me feedback on this podcast like i said earlier 
give it a five star if you found it helpful. It really helps to support the podcast. And don't forget to share it with someone that you love. I think that's that's important. And maybe you don't love them. Maybe you just want to share it with someone that you want to love. A potential crush, perhaps. Sorry if I've just blown your cover. Okay, I take it back. Whoever sent this to you, yeah, they just sent it casually. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, maybe they love you. Maybe maybe they just love everyone. Try to help me play it cool. All right. Thanks for listening, guys. I'll see you soon. Or speak to you soon. Be in your ear holes soon. <laughs>